0: Do you take out your Bibles and open them to the book of Matthew? Matthew chapter 2. Father, we want to pause for a moment in our worship and once again address you and thank you, Father, for your word. One of the ways, Lord, that we worship you is by focusing on your word and what you've said. And Father, that's what we, we want to do. We want to understand, we want to review these passages, the letters, the books that you have preserved for us, that we may know and that we may understand. And so, Father, this morning, once again, we have have sung hymns and praises to your name. We have confessed our sin. We have read scripture. Again, we have prayed. We have given our tithes and offerings and all these things we have done, Father, to honor you, to give you the reverence that you so rightly deserve. And then, Father, we come to that point to where All of our thoughts and all of our focus and all of our attention is on your word. And in particular here, it is on the the Gospel of Matthew. And as always, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would use your word to continue to teach us your truths, to remind us of your truths. The Father, we may grow, that we may be encouraged and strengthened. We thank you, Father, for Jesus, for all that he's done. We thank you, Lord, for sending him to this, to this earth to be our Savior. And so we ask, Lord, again, you'd open our eyes to be able to see him much more clearly. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Many have noted when they read through this passage that the visit of the Magi here confirmed that Jesus again is the Messiah. He is Israel's rightful king. Emmanuel, who is worthy of worship, and the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. So Herod the Great ruled Israel from 37 to 4 BC. And he was ruling by Roman imperial appointment. So the birth of Jesus does occur in the final years of his reign. Somewhere between 8 and 4 BC. We say that because there's these different theories as to when he was born. And you know, people kind of line up their beliefs as to why it was this year or one year or the other. Uh, a lot of them make it. They all have good points to make, and then when others refute them, that makes sense as well. But that's the general time frame that he was uh, uh, that he was born. And I want you to keep in mind that when this event takes place, uh, a lot of individuals also want to know about this guy Herod. Well, there's actually several Herods in the Bible. So on page four, I have a brief summary uh, for you uh, to kind of help you keep track of who Herod is and which Herod is being spoken of at different places in the Bible. But our focus is going to be on the wise men or on the Magi. They come from the east, which means then as you read your Bible, this doesn't mean east of Georgia. Uh, We have to, you know, locate this back to where it was written. So the east at the time of Christ's birth meant uh, uh, Persia, Assyria, Babylonia, you know, the area now that's uh, comprised by Iran and Iraq. Justin Martyr said in 160 AD, he said, the Magi from Arabia, meaning modern Saudi Arabia, came to Herod. Then there was Clement of Alexandria, who said they came from Persia. And again, there's different views as to well, who are these wise men? I mean, where do they come from? You know, what, what are they? And there's some intrigue about that. And so there's these different views. We're not going to go through all of them. Uh, There are those who believe that they are from Mesopotamia, in particular Babylon. Babylon wasn't a world power by this time, uh, but that's where I believe these guys are and where they come from. The word Mesopotamia comes from a Greek word meaning between the rivers, and it refers to the land between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. So that region can be broadly defined to include the area that is now eastern Syria, southeastern Turkey, and most of Iraq. Some of the major Mesopotamian civilizations uh, that came out of the area are the Sumeran or the Sumerian, uh, the Assyrians, the um, Akkadian, and the Babylonian civilizations. So that's rich in history. uh, A lot of uh, world powers came from there. So more specifically, some have, again, suggested that the origin of the Magi was Persia, Arabia, or Babylon, and I kind of lean towards Babylon. But here's the question. How did the Magi know? How did they know a Jewish king had been born? What we're given here is they see this star, or they see a bright light. It's not a neon sign. It doesn't say the king of the Jews has been born. They just see this bright light. How do they connect that to Jesus? How do they connect that to the Messiah being born? And, then, and why would they have come to worship him? Like, where does that come from? These are Gentiles. They're, they're not Jewish. Israel's is under Roman rule. Why would these guys do that? Somehow they knew that connected with the star, that all this was connected to the star, they saw in the east. What was it about the star that made them do that? Now, there's been a lot of attempts through the years to explain the star In astronomical terms meaning looking at astronomy there's a lot of specials you can watch I don't know if there's a lot I know there's at least three individuals have their views as to what was going on with the planets uh, and that type of thing Um, and if you want to watch them it's okay Uh, my person think it's just a waste of time because it's not a star as we think of a star it's not a star Uh, the basic rule of Bible interpretation is you always take the Bible literally Unless there's something in the context that will not allow it to be taken that way. And I think when you look at the star, you recognize it's not a star as we think of a star. Five reasons. Number one, this star is referred to specifically as his star. Like it's the Messiah's personal star. It belonged to him in a way that was not true of any other star. Secondly, it appeared and disappeared on at least two occasions. I know, you can look in the sky, and if you know anything about stars, I guess sometimes you can see them, and sometimes you can't. And it moved from east to west, and it moved from north to south. I don't know of any stars that move from north to south. that, That doesn't happen. So to me, that eliminates the idea that this is a real, what we would think of as being a little star. And then, this star literally came down and hovered over one particular house in the town of Bethlehem. I believe that it was pointing to one house. There's, there's no record of the wise men coming and this somehow figure out that this star is pointing to, I guess, Bethlehem in general, and they start going and knocking on doors. They knew exactly where to go. And if we just think about it, I mean, it's kind of comical, but if a star got close enough to the planet to point out one house, the planet would be obliterated. You know, our, our sun is a small star, and we don't want that thing getting too much closer. That it is because it would be overwhelming and none of us would, would survive. So all of that, I believe, points to the idea that this is not a star. It's not a literal star. So if it's not a little star, what was it? Well, we know that when these Gentile magi saw this unusual brilliance in the sky, it signaled to them that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, was born. How would they know that? I mean, you have these guys, wherever they're they're from, out there in the area of Mesopotamia. And the looking of the stars, and of course back then, astronomy and astrology would be very closely linked together. Not kind of not like how it is today. Um, you would have individuals who would try to get messages from the stars, uh, and and so that that kind of thing did go on. You know, they would pay attention to how the stars were aligned, and it would mean certain things to them, but not always. And they were also studying the movement of planets. And if you ever watch any specials of different ancient civilizations, you could tell that. You know, they talk about certain civilizations that have figured out how the stars, the sun, the moon kind of moves across the sky. It's always fascinating to see that, that these individuals, without all the other things that we have to help us, like computers and whatever, and they're, they're able to figure all that out. It's, it's really uncanny. Uh, and that early on, men were able to sail the seas using the stars to guide them. I look up in the sky, and it's not guiding me anywhere. But I don't know what I'm doing (laughs) when I look up there. But they've 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 developed certain tools, and they can do that. And it's amazing. So when it comes to that, how would these guys know that that's what this star represents or means? Well, we have a story in the book of Numbers. From Numbers chapter 22 through 24, we have the story of Balaam. Balaam is a Gentile astrologer, a seer or a wizard, if you will. He was the kind of guy that uh, his services were for sale. Uh, he was well-known. He was famous. Uh, he was known for being, for, you know, you bring him in, you pay him a fee. Uh, if you were going to war against another nation, this guy could pronounce a curse on who you were going to go fight against and kind of guarantee you victory. And he, he comes from a family that, that did that kind of thing. And the way that it would normally work is these guys were experts in all these various religions in the region. They knew the names of the gods, they knew all kinds of things, and apparently they had this ability, or at least they they thought, others thought they had the ability, to either bribe or trick or convince the gods of another country to to cause them to lose, allow them to lose, or, or what have you. And so this guy was hired, and in the story he's hired to place a curse on Israel. He was hired by the king of Moab to curse them four different times Balaam, you know, gets himself ready. He goes to curse them. And each time he he does so, he opens his mouth. And when he does, at that moment, God takes over his mouth. And he speaks a blessing on Israel, which does not make the king of Moab very happy when this happens. In these blessings, he issues a few messianic prophecies. And one of them is found in Numbers 24, Verse 17. So I'm going to start reading in verse 15. And it reads, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So the word scepter that appears here, it's a symbol of kingship. Um, and so we have this Babylonian astrologer, Balaam. And he connects the coming of this messianic person with kingship and with the star. Now there's an interesting side note just kind of about Balaam. Um, if you're ever traveling the world... You can go to the uh, Jordanian Museum of Archaeology, and they have a section, uh, a, a prophecy from Balaam. It's not this one, but they have a pro- they have the, some of the writings of Balaam, and you can see it. Uh, all the various scholars are agreed that's exactly what this is. I just think it's kind of cool uh, that, yeah, it's a real guy. He really did speak and, and uh, kind of lends a, a degree of credibility to the story about this one individual, uh, that he really did exist, and this is the kind of thing that he did. So. With this being said, we're going to you know, have to put all these little small parts together. How did the Jews understand what Balaam said? That's the first question. So when Balaam says this, and Jews read this later on, what, what are they thinking about this? Well, we can look some of that up. And the rabbis that were writing in this thing called the Targum Neophyti state that this verse is clearly messianic. And they interpret its star, uh, the star, and it's rendered king and scepter. As redeemer and ruler. And so they, you know, it's not every single Jewish person believes this, but there's this idea running among these scholars that this verse is messianic and speaks of this Messiah in, in, in two ways one, he's a redeemer, and one, he is ruler. And that he's gonna rise from Jacob and he's gonna exercise dominion. Remember that when Jesus came to, or when he began his ministry, Remember that there were several different kinds of beliefs among the Jews concerning the Messiah. There, there were the, the, you know, they were all looking for the Messiah to come. Some believed that two different messiahs were coming. And the reason why they thought there were going to be two different ones is when they read through the Old Testament, it appears to describe two different kinds of individuals. Both messiahs, but one what we are familiar with, the suffering servant. We, we all clearly understand what that is. But also, it's very clear that when the Messiah comes, he's coming as a king. He's coming to conquer. And so in their mind, well, this is this two, different, two different individuals. You know, we have the suffering. We have the, the one. and Of course, guess which one is the one they're all really waiting for. They're waiting for the conqueror. You're under Roman rule. You know, they're kind of squashing you. We're looking for that Messiah to come. But the bottom line is, is you have all these different views. But you did have, we know there was a believing remnant. Remember that uh, when Jesus was dedicated, there was a time when he's brought, and there's this old man that's at the temple, and God had promised him. Uh, that he would not die until he saw the Messiah, basically. And so he, he sees the Christ child, and this guy is excited. He, he believes that God has not forgotten his people, and he's going to redeem them. Uh, and so we have these individuals placed throughout the Bible who, who, are, who are thinking about these other things. Remember, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he and a few other Pharisees, they've been talking about Jesus. They've been listening carefully to what Jesus says. They're not all hung up on the miracles. They they believe the miracles Jesus is doing is what they're supposed to do. They prove he's from God. They believe that. But they're also paying attention to everything else he's saying. Most of the Pharisees are upset because Jesus is is giving a different understanding of the law than what they gave. And some of the Pharisees believe that when the Messiah would come, he he would also be a Pharisee. Jesus was clearly not a Pharisee. And so there was a large group. They don't like him. But within that group, you have these, these individuals, um, Nicodemus, there's also Joseph of Arimathea, And these individuals are, we would call, they are truly spiritual. They, they, they love God. They want to know what God is doing. They, they want to have an understanding of what the scripture says. They're not concerned about their position or their place or their wealth or any of those kinds of things. They're not hypocritical in the way they live their life. They're not in it for the show. And so we have these individuals who we can tell that they are viewing the Scripture very differently. And so we go back then and we see that there's, there's a group, how many? I have no idea. Uh, there's no way to know this. But there is this understanding that when, when this is being read in numbers, that it's speaking of the Messiah. And that it, it's connected to a Redeemer and to a King. So the Jews see the star as a symbol of the Messiah. Then when you read, I'm going to read to you from Zechariah. The reason I'm going to read to you from there is not only because of what it says, but because of what someone says about it. So Zechariah chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, it says, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place. He shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the counsel of peace shall be between them both. And so I believe this is speaking of Christ, this is speaking of the Messiah. So Justin Martyr, he's a native of Samaria, he became a believer as a young man, he's commenting on Zechariah, but when he comments on Zechariah, he is combining what Zechariah says to what it says back in, in Numbers. The first five books of the Bible, we believe, and I believe it's so, were all written by Moses. And so they are referred to as the books of Moses, or they would just say, as Moses wrote. And that's what they're referring to. So Justin Martyr says this about this Zechariah passage. He who was to spring up as a star by means of the race of Abraham, Moses, again referring to Numbers 24, gave us to understand when he said, Our star shall shall spring up out of Jacob, and a leader out of Israel. And another scripture says, Behold the man, his name is Dayspring, When, therefore, a star sprang up also in heaven at the very time of his birth, as it is written in the memoirs of his apostles, the wise men from the east recognized him from this and came and worshipped him. So Justin Martyr puts all this together. He says, because of what it says in Numbers, that these men, these astrologers, these astronomers, the magi, they recognize what's going on. And so they come to worship him. So God interacted with Balaam. Balaam was never a believer. God made sure that the Magi would have known of the star and its importance. But Balaam's prophecy says nothing about when the star would appear. So how would the Magi know when to look for the star? Hundreds of years go by after Daniel does his writings. I mean, hundreds of years. So how would anyone after this read this stuff and know when this super bright light in heaven is supposed to appear, and again, that signaling the birth of the Messiah. Well, there's a passage that kind of pinpoints when it's going to happen, and that's back in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. Now again, keep in mind that the book of Daniel was not written in Israel. It was written in Babylon. Half of the book of Daniel was written in Aramaic, which is the language of the Babylonians. So let me give you just a little bit of background. And most of you are aware of this, but we want to try to connect the dots here. So Daniel chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, I'll begin to read to you the story. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. And the king answered, and he said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn from limb to limb, and your houses shall be laid to ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. So then in verse 7, I'm sure these guys are beginning to panic, heart rate's going up. They said, "Uh, king, and they, same thing, tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it means. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king. It said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so because of this, the king was angry and very furious. And he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. You know who's part of that group? Daniel. Daniel's part of the group of wise men. So so as you read the story, Daniel prays. Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So Daniel then goes and he tells the king his dream. And he tells him what it means. In Daniel chapter 2, beginning of verse 36, it says, Then the king, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, and he paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering in and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods, and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over all over the whole province of babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of babylon. So basically Daniel ends up saving the lives of all the wise men. All these guys, I mean they're all, you know, it's it's bad news for them. And Daniel comes through. Well, the God of Daniel comes through. And so in this when he's when he's appointed chief prefect over all the wise men, basically Daniel is appointed like the head, or maybe you would say the president, over the school of astrology. Now you can remember that for Daniel, Daniel, when he studies the stars, he's not looking for the stars to give him information or revelation. He knows he gets that from God, and and the story makes that clear. But again, this school or these individuals, you have all kinds of individuals of different philosophies, religions, etc., and many of them are these enchanters who are looking for the stars to give them revelation. But the president of the school, its not what he does. He's very different. And of course, he's heads and shoulders above all the rest because he's so far never been wrong. He's always been correct. So again, Daniel would never receive revelation from the stars, but from the creator of the stars. And so many, many years later, these Babylonian magi, they have in their possession a book. A book written by their past president. Daniel. And in that book, Daniel pinpointed how many years would go by before the Messiah would appear. So, you know, if you ever watch these movies, you know, like the Harry Potter movies, whatever, there's always, like, some grand wizard, and in, in the office of these grand wizards, they have all these old scrolls, and so when they're asked certain questions, they go, ah, and they can go, and, you know, they whether it's by magic or they climb a ladder, you know, they, get, they know where the scroll is, and they read some obscure passage, and they know what it means, and you know, they're telling everybody, oh, it means this and this and this, and this is what we have to do. and you know, Well, that's kind of what's going on here. These guys, you know, they have all these old scrolls and manuscripts, and they're reading all these different things. These are Gentiles, and they're familiar with the writing of their past president, the book of Daniel, and they know what's going on. And so these, that's what these guys do all the time. And so they know about when to look in, in the, the stars or look in the sky for this. Daniel chapter 9, and I'll read verses 24 through 26. This is what they would have read in Aramaic. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. "'Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem "'to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. "'Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. "'And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing. "'And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. "'Its end shall come with a flood.' And to the end, there should be war, and desolations are decreed. So the part that we are looking at here is, he talks about from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. So Babylon, they had overrun Jerusalem. They had removed several of its citizens from the country. And as you read through the scripture, in history, there's some decrees that are made giving Israel basically permission to rebuild the city. Now, there's more than one decree, and so there is, again, some debate as to which decree this is referring to, but it's referring to when the city is going to be rebuilt, and from there, we have 62 weeks, and again, if you go through some books, they'll begin to tell you that, you know, that the weeks represent years, and so you do this multiplication, and about 480, 490 years later is about when all this is going to happen, and who's coming? The anointed one. Who's the anointed one? Well, that's the word Messiah, or the word Christ. So they would have been familiar with this. So the Magi, based on Daniel, based on this book, knew the approximate time when the anointed one would come. And when they saw this unusual brilliance in the sky, they took that to be the signal that the Messiah, the anointed one, was born. And again, the source, again, of this was divine revelation. So it wasn't revealed in the stars. The sign was in the stars. But the revelation as to when this was going to come was what? Through the written word, through the word that God gave to Daniel. So, again, the source was divine revelation through the written record, the book of Daniel, and not astrology. So, so now we know about, you know, they knew about when to look. They were looking. When they saw this brilliance, they, from, again, from the past, they know what, it, what it's talking about, that this brilliant star had, had to be very unusual, you know, because, again, they, they noticed it to the point that they decided to leave where they were and to go searching for him. They, they were moved to do this. Now I know you know you've heard of me say this before. We have the song "We Three Kings" of Oyanar, and it was it's the wise men. Well, there was at least two. Uh, we don't know if there was three. That's based on the three gifts, uh, but there's nothing in it to indicate there were three of them. There, there may have been 20 or 30. What we do know is this: there was enough of them that when they should have been Jerusalem, Herod gives them a special audience, and he's concerned. He he's not happy. You know he's. Just so you know, if you read some more history, he's a wild man. He kills people. Anyone who's he thinks a threat, he kills him. He kills people in his own family. Kills his kids. I mean, this guy is nuts, uh, and everyone knows that he's he's this cruel man. And so, it it could be that when it says that he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, I think they were troubled because they knew he was troubled and didn't know what he was going to do. I mean, you, you, we all already, you, most of you already know what he's going to do later, right? He basically Gives a decree, and he wants a bunch of babies killed. Doesn't matter. Two years old under, kill them. If they're male, kill them. He just wants them slaughtered. He, he and he gives us, you know, this, this two-year period of time because uh, he wants to make sure that he leaves no stone unturned, leaves no baby alive, because he doesn't want this king, because he feels threatened, because you know he's been uh, named the king by Rome to rule. He doesn't want anyone to come along to take his place. So that's, that's all this stuff that's going on. So why did the Magi, why, the Magi, why did they go to Jerusalem? Well, it's the capital of Israel. I mean, they know that the Messiah, they know that this is Jewish, they know Daniel was Jewish, uh, so where do you go? Well, there's this bright star, we'll go to the capital. It would be the logical place to go. And So Balaam connected the star with the kingship of the Messiah. Daniel provided the timetable. But again, we have another question. Although the Magi had the book of Daniel, they did not have the book of Micah, which prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The Magi didn't know that. Herod didn't know that. So when the Magi came to Jerusalem, they asked the question. Herod asked the question. And again, going back to Matthew, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 2, when they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When, the, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. There's not a whole lot of time that goes by before they have the answer. They know this. They all know Messiah is be born in Bethlehem. So they come right back. There's no discussion. There's no vote taken. There's no argument. They're just telling him, yeah, he's be born in Bethlehem. They knew this stuff, which really raises a lot of questions when it comes, but when Jesus appears and begins to do the things that he does, why did they just not accept what they were seeing? They, they, they know all these things. And it, it always comes back to the, the, the main thing about human beings. Because people will say that they just, if I just, if, if someone has more evidence, if there's just more revelation, if there's just this, they will believe. No, they won't. Man does not choose to not believe because he he can't, he won't. Now it is combined to can't, because he didn't want to. But the idea is, is, it's not because he's missing evidence. You know, we sometimes think that if some, some event happens to someone, that'll turn him around. It, it might. That's why we always pray that God will use it to turn him around. Because by itself, it doesn't. You know, people. when I was in the jail ministry, people would say all the time, oh yeah, I'm sure when a man gets arrested and goes to jail, oh yeah, they are definitely gonna turn to Christ. You know, when you hit bottom, all you can do is look up. Really? I've lived, I've served there for a long, I always said I lived there. I, I served there for a long time. And what I've seen is that a man can hit bottom one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times, they're not looking to God. They're not. It doesn't happen. It's not automatic. Sin blinds us and makes us stupid. And so that's, that's not going to happen. So, Here's the thing that I want us to remember. God sent Christ at a specific time in a specific way. The magi that show up, they're not there by accident. There's, these groups, there's this group of Gentile academics, basically, astronomers, astrologers, who for hundreds of years, as they are familiar with the writings of Daniel and many other things, this information is passed down and passed down for hundreds of years. And so this group looking for this event, they recognize it as being significant. And it appears, I'm not, I don't know if we can say they're believers. You know, that we, people can argue about it if they want to. But, because we know that several times Nebuchadnezzar makes these statements that the God of Israel is the one true God. But there's no evidence he becomes a believer. But he recognizes that the God of Israel is unique and different and he, is, he makes this proclamation. So this information is passed down. The God of Israel basically is not someone to be trifled with. It, this, is, this is God. And so these guys, it's no accident that they are aware of this timing of these things. God had preserved the book of Daniel for them in one sense, in the same way that God is, he has preserved the Holy Scriptures for you and for me. God's done that. We know history. Through history, there's been many attempts by many individuals trying to destroy the Bible, trying to get rid of its existence, trying to wipe it out. And it just, it just, they're never successful. And we can't say that God has preserved His Word for you. It is no accident. It's the only way we know the Gospel. It's the only way that we understand the things that we know about God is through the written Word. And so God left no stone unturned. God is involved in all the details of history. These men the possession of the book. They're being moved to come and to worship, showing up at just the right time in Bethlehem and, and making this inquiry. And we know that, that, that what they're looking for is not some obscure information because the chief and, uh, and priests and Pharisees, they, they all turn immediately, they know exactly where this is coming from. And they know where he's going to be born. It's, it's just amazing. All along the way, you can really see the hand of God throughout history in making this event take place when it did. And of course, what I, one of the things I think has always been unique is that crucifixion being used as capital punishment was the official capital punishment of Rome for only about, if I've read these things correctly, for only about 150 years. And so in one sense, humanly speaking, there's this, there's this gap of time when Jesus can come because he's, he's going to be, he has to be crucified. You look at the descriptions of the Old Testament, the only thing that matches to the kind of suffering it, it portrays is crucifixion. All of that is not by accident. Which brings us again back to you and to me. We are created in the image of God. In the culture we live in today, you often hear Christians say that each person is important and has value. What is that based on? It's based on what the Bible says, that we're all created in the image of God. Now, that image has been marred by sin. But even though that image has been marred by sin, God did send his son to redeem who? Sinful man. Man who was rebelling against God. And so when it comes to your life and my life, if you are a believer, just spend some time thinking about how your life went before you were converted to Christ. Perhaps you'll be able to see how there were certain people you met, events that took place, maybe where your family moved, all these things that line up to get you to that one point to where you then believed in Christ. And all the various events, circumstances and people that God used to bring it to that point. For me, it was being born into a Christian family. My father was, ended, up becoming, was, ended up being the first Christian in his family and moved away from home to, to raise his family distinctly Christian, away from the influences of others. That wasn't just an accident that that happened. And I was born in that family. And then the, all these events took the place to, to what I was exposed to and, and who I met along the way that God used in my life in different ways to influence me to get to this point to where that I believed in Christ. And then, and then after that, the people that God has brought into our life to help us along, to encourage us. So God is actually active and has been active in your life all along. You haven't seen that or maybe recognized it, but it's there. God leaves nothing in your life to accident or to chance. In the same way, in the birth of Christ, nothing has been left to accident, nothing been left to chance. God, when God sent Jesus, He was not in heaven saying, "Oh, man, I, ho- I hope those magi. I hope they've been reading Daniel." You know, he, God wasn't panicking 200 years earlier. He says, oh, no, they've lost the book of Daniel. No, that he made sure that was preserved. We don't know the details, but clearly they had it because they knew what was going on. Remember that when they came to Jerusalem, they didn't say, you know, we saw this bright star. It seemed to be leading us here. We're not sure why we're here, but we're looking for something or someone. No, 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 no. They're very specific. Do you know where the king of the Jews is? We've come to see him and to worship him. It's truly amazing. First Gentile worship of Jesus recorded in the Bible. It's absolutely marvelous. If you don't know Christ, what I can tell you is that in your life, God has been active. God has orchestrated everything in your life. You are here today hearing what the Gospel of Matthew says concerning Christ and the sovereignty of God. And we're here celebrating what, what God has done for us, what He's done for us in Christ, which is why there is that empty cross behind me. because we celebrate the risen Savior, the who was crucified for our sin and died, God accepted that sacrifice, accepted the offering and raised him from the dead, giving us evidence of that acceptance. And we place our faith in that as, as a result of that. All of us who believe know when we die, we are going to be in heaven with the Lord because of God's goodness. So whatever's happening in your life, if you are unsure or maybe you just know that you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, the way of salvation is through faith in Christ. God has left nothing to chance in your life. And, we, and we, need to, we need to take that very seriously. And we pray that God will open your eyes and give you understanding. That, it's my personal belief, I think it's that for many here, the most important thing is that we understand. We understand Christ, we understand the Gospel, we understand the Bible. So we're not, I'm not inviting you to come to Christ because I want you to be part of a club or because somehow you're gonna suddenly become rich and you get a promotion at work or, I I don't know if that's gonna happen. But I want you to understand the Gospel. I want you to understand the message. And if you wanna know more or you wanna know how to become a Christian, You can talk to me. You can talk to Steve, who who read scriptures uh, the scripture this morning and pray. There are many here who'd be more than happy, men and women, who would share the gospel with you, and be willing to answer any question you have. And if they don't know the answer, they'll look it up so that you can understand. We want you to come to Christ with your eyes open, knowing and understanding what He's done. And that's true for you if you're eight years old or 80. Christ came to save all men. And so I want to encourage you to think about the hand of God and how merciful and gracious God has been in your life and how he has blessed you all along the way. It's truly astounding, and there'd be so much to be grateful for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've left nothing to chance. It goes really without saying that we are overjoyed that you did not leave the coming of Christ to chance much less anything else that's recorded for us in the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that you've not left our salvation at the chance either. We ask, Lord, that you would move strongly in our hearts and lives. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are believers, that we will recognize clearly your hand of mercy and that your hand of mercy has been upon us for a long time. Give us eyes to see that. We do want to pray, Father, for those who do not know Christ. We pray, Lord, that if necessary, you would put a a spotlight on the trouble in their life. Whether they just have troubling thoughts or a sense of loneliness or maybe a sense of guilt or maybe a combination of things. I pray, Lord, you would help them to see that there are no answers out there that will satisfy. We pray, Lord, you would help them to see that it's because they're separated from you. It's because of their sin. but That you have remedied that problem through Christ. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help them to see clearly, enable them to believe in Christ and be saved. Father, we ask now that as we bring our time to a close that you cause us to think often about this passage and to recognize again that you are very active in the world and that you leave nothing to chance. It gives to us a great sense of confidence and security. We do thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.